Employers, they want to monitor this information. They want to monitor what's going on. And, and I believe they do have a right to do that, and they should monitor the information. But employers really need to have written employment policies in place. They need to talk with their employees, make sure their employees are educated about what they can do and they can't do during the, during the day as far as their social media usage. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. I'm Craig Williams from sunny Southern California. My co-host, Bob Ambrogi, is away on business today. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, SunTrust, who offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and legal firms at suntrust.com slash law, and Clio, a web-based practice management software for lawyers at goclio.com. Well, social media became mainstream. From Facebook to Twitter to LinkedIn, businesses, law firms, and the general public are all plugged in and benefiting from the networking aspect of social media. But with the popularity of social media in and out of the workplace comes potential legal issues. So today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to be taking a look at the legal issues surrounding social media. We'll look at defamation, privacy, employee use of social media, and how firms and businesses can protect themselves from potential lawsuits. Our first guest today is attorney Dahlia Saper. She is the principal at Saper Law Offices out of Chicago, where her practice centers around intellectual property. She is on the faculty of the Practicing Law Institute and has been selected by Harvard Law School's Berkman Center for Internet and Society to be a member of Harvard's new online media network. In addition to conducting seminars at Saper Law on a monthly basis. Dahlia is a frequent lecturer, panelist, and instructor for organizations around the city and country. She is also an adjunct professor at Loyola University Chicago School of Law, teaching a sports and entertainment law course. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Dahlia. Thank you. And our next guest is attorney Bradley Shear. He is the managing partner of the law offices of Bradley S. Shear, LLC, based in the Washington, D.C. metro area. Attorney Shear is a nationally recognized attorney, consultant, and speaker. His blog, Shear on Social Media, can be found at shearsocialmedia.com, and it discusses the legal issues that social media content providers and users confront. Bradley assisted the state of Maryland in drafting its social media election regulations that have been hailed as a model for the rest of the country. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Brad Shear. Hey, thanks for having me on the program today. Well, let's start off by discussing the common legal issues surrounding social media. Uh, Dahlia, what do you think that we're seeing in law firms and in businesses? Well, I can talk about what my practice has seen. Um, There's been an influx of using social media for the purposes of defamatory comments and, of course, to trade in infringing material and or engage in unfair competition. So I think uh, on, on the lawsuit end, those are the biggest issues. And on the business end, you're seeing a lot of advertising and um, you know, contests and sweepstakes that are taking place over social media. So those, those, I would say, are the primary areas where social media has impacted the operation of any business. 
Well, Brad, it seems that there have been a significant increase in the use of uh, Facebook pages in divorce cases. Have you seen that? I've seen a lot of that. Uh, in general, I've seen a lot of other attorneys come to me and ask me about uh, some of the issues involved. And um, I know it's gotten a lot of press lately as far as uh, different um, different divorce cases where uh, one side is u- utilizing Facebook to ask um Ask what uh, what type of posts were put up there and who they're friends with, and uh, as far as what type of uh, messages were sent back and forth. And I believe um, something along those lines. The big case out in um, I believe it's out on the West Coast with the little boy who's missing, where the stepmom I think was texting the uh, the ex boyfriend or the or her new boyfriend or something along those lines is is now starting to hit the news. So those are some of the many issues that are going to be I guess increasing over the next couple of years as far as how people are utilizing Facebook to, to, to disguise their personal relationships or extramarital affairs. It's a very big problem. What about regular everyday people? Are they aware of these issues? I mean, it seems like we've heard a lot from Facebook about privacy problems, and certainly, you know, maybe people think that these pages are private and will never be discovered. Dahlia, what's your thought? Well, I think this topic came up with the whole Google Buzz issue as well, in the sense that so many people are going online for so many aspects of their lives, and they're entrusting these uh, web services, whether it's Facebook or Google's, you know, million other ap- applications, to maintain their information as private. So there isn't a lot of lawsuits about this issue yet, but I think as consumers become more savvy, they're going to demand that their privacy is protected, and it'll be a, a, you know, a struggle between the, the usability and the functionality of the sites everyone loves to use and then being able to give up some of that privacy that goes that, that one would hope would go along with it. Are Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn pages admissible in court? Depends on the, actually, it depends on the judge, you know, in, in the jurisdiction. In, in my case, we had a personal, and I don't really handle personal injury cases regularly, but we had an, a case that involved a um, hair removal uh, burn, and I represented the medical spa, and the, the plaintiff had alleged burns of a severe and permanent nature. And sure enough, she had left her Facebook profile open to the world. And so when I went to visit her site, she had photos of herself in a bikini uh, a month after the alleged burns of a severe and permanent nature. So we, we, I filed a protective order to, A, maintain, make sure that those records wouldn't be deleted before we had conducted full discovery, and of course later so that I could admit, make them as, submit them as admissible evidence. And um, the judge in this case happened to be an older gentleman who didn't even know what Facebook was. So when I went in for that protective order, he thought it was very confusing and unnecessary for me to require the plaintiff to post pictures of herself in a bathing suit online. So when I tried to explain, no, no, she had already posted them herself, and this is really a, you know, this is a Facebook posting, I, I was, you know, he came back with kind of a blank look and, and asked me what Facebook was. So I think it, it, a part of it depends on the jurisdiction, whether or not the judge is familiar with Facebook and what a social media, you know, social networking platform is in the first instance, and, and then also the nature of the case. And if, if that person took precautions to maintain the privacy of their account, in this case, she left it wide open. Brad, what about defamation? Are we seeing that being an issue in the social networking community? Oh, it's a, it's a huge issue, and it's only going to get a lot worse. And the, the problem is I advise companies that they really have to take a look at the PR Issues also involved with defamation because right off the bat, it's, it's very difficult to prove defamation. And um, obviously, as far as if you have uh, false information is out there and then it's publicized, but 
if you're a famous figure, it, it's really going to make it that much more difficult. So, in general, I try to advise clients to basically ignore the uh, ignore the situation. It's not something that's really going to impact their bottom line because the more that you um, shed light on, on a possible defamation issue, the bigger it gets. I'll give you a good example of this. Um, earlier this year, there was a, a big case in, in Illinois with uh, the landlord. Uh, I forget the name of the landlord, but... Um, so a renter had put something on Twitter, and it was just a couple of little lines about I think it had to do with something with um, their apartment was moldy or something to that effect. And then the uh, landlord got hold of it, and the person started with just, I think, a handful of uh, followers and then and literally mushroomed. So you really have to think about, uh, bottom line, is it really worth from a business standpoint to go after someone, even if you're if you're legally right, but the PR issues could really hurt your bottom line. So something that I really push businesses to, to really think about before they decide that they want to go after somebody. I think sometimes the challenge is not knowing who made the statement. And in that case, they, they were able to immediately identify the person that made the posting. Oftentimes, um, again, with the use of social media, you're finding individuals and companies that are being disparaged and they're hiding behind sort of anonymous uh, handle or some sort of name and, and they don't even know who, who's making these statements, who's out to get them. I know in my practice, we have been filing lots of petitions for discovery, forcing these various web publishers, not publishers, web uh, services, websites, to disclose the information of the allegedly, you know, the person making the allegedly defamatory comments. And that's been really interesting, watching these different sites respond to these petitions. What's been the general response? Are you finding that uh, the ISPs are cooperating with you, or are they trying to protect their own users' privacy? Some, well, some will just be like, "Ugh, we don't want to deal with this. Make sure we don't have to. If as long as we don't have to appear in court, we'll give you what we have." And then we've also had the other end of the spectrum that that basically fought us for it and basically, you know, "Hey, we're not going to give up the information because, in our opinion, this isn't defamatory. You're going to have to fight us to get get the information." In my experience, it's basically hiding behind. The uh, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, um, and trying to uh, really push the issue because, in general, at least in my uh, my practice, it's very uh, I found little flexibility in trying to give out information as far as from the social media companies. So it's really an uphill battle. Let's look at privacy issues. Do you uh, see this coming up with employers monitoring their employees' use of social media online during the day at work? Sh- sure, it, it, it's something that's. It's really going to end up being a much bigger issue than it is now. I mean, right now, the biggest problem that I, that I see with uh, my clients is that employers, they want to monitor this information. They want to monitor what's going on, and, and I believe they do have a right to do that, and they should monitor the information. But employers really need to have written employment policies in place. They need to talk with their employees, make sure the employee, their employees are educated about what they can do and they can't do during the during the day as far as their social media usage. I mean, I'll give you a good example. I had a client come in recently, and they warned they warned a uh, an employee that uh, you can't keep tweeting during the day and during your work hours on your personal um, account. And after several warnings, then the person was fired. And it's just going to things like that are going to end up being more commonplace. And the only reason why the employer knew about the tweets was that. The employer was following the account of the employee, and that's something that I believe is going to only increase in the near future. And really, what employers need to do are they need to have written employment policies, educate their employees, and constantly update the employment policies. And you have to really be careful because there's all sorts of other 
issues involved. I mean, you have, um, for, for example, if, if you end up checking someone's credentials out online, I mean, when, when, when you have an employee come in, you want to make sure that they sign a release form to allow them to, to allow the employer to do a background check, but you also want to allow them to take a look at um, your social media accounts because in the future, I think everyone's going to basically have an online resume, and that's going to basically determine um, it's going to be a check against your actual credentials. Is there really, uh, I mean, I, I've seen, like, for example, LinkedIn is probably the best example of an online resume, but really if you look at it, um, Facebook and Twitter and a number of these other sites, uh, Google Buzz and so forth, are also a form of an online resume, not necessarily the kind of resume you'd want to have online. I agree with you 100%. You have to be very careful with what you put online because everything you put online, it stays out there some way, somehow. And so my best piece of advice to employees and employers is check to make sure what you put out there is something that you feel comfortable in always being out there because once it goes up, it can never get taken down. Some way, somehow, there's going to be some some way to obtain the information, even if you have, for example, on your Facebook page, I'm an active user of Facebook, and I have everything private. Um, but let's say a friend of a friend wants to is utilizing their account, then they can see everything that's on there. So, I mean, you just have to be very careful with what you put on there because once it's on there, even if it's a so-called private or walled-in community, people can still access it. Dahlia, are you seeing the similar issues with privacy and employers and employees? Yeah, well, we had a case involving Glassdoor.com, and that's the site where employees go out and uh, kiss their bosses anonymously. And so, you know, similar issues. On one hand, we talk about the PR of uh, negative implications of pursuing someone who made a negative posting or defamatory posting. And on the other hand, you're dealing with people who rely on this online resume, whether it's they work for a company and diss it or um, someone who writes something negative about them and, and needs to clear their name. So to the, to the point about making those comments and cleaning, keeping your online reputation clean, what I've seen is an influx of reputation management companies reaching out to me to collaborate, whereas they provide services to drive down negative search results. They sometimes need the assistance of an attorney to remove those negative Posting. So there's a lot of issues that come up with respect to online personas or what you're doing. And if you can control your own activities online, great. You know, your LinkedIn profile can be the default correct information. Um, and you need to be really vigilant with protecting your reputation when it's not something you can control. Someone doesn't like you, they go post something about your company. Someone doesn't like you, they say something negative about you on Facebook, you know. Let's give our listeners some practical advice, Brad. What is it that they should do when they find a negative or defamatory statement online? That's a tough question. I mean, it really depends on what actually, what it exactly says. I mean, my best piece of advice is um, try to find out if, if, if you can find out who the person is. I mean, if it's a friend of yours, maybe they were joking around or, or something along those lines and see if you can politely ask them to take it down. If it's someone who's a competitor or something along those lines, it's, it, the worst thing you can do is if you see something that's defamatory online and you contact a person, you don't know them, uh, what they can do, I've seen this happen to my clients. They've contacted someone and they've actually taken that contact, the person who put the defamatory statement up there, put the put the um, the, the actual um, email or, or another type of correspondence up online to say, hey, look, so-and-so disagrees and this is what's going on. So sometimes the best best piece of advice is to ignore it, but if you don't want to ignore it, if it gets too big, then 
and try to get other people around you to put positive information out there about uh, about your services or your products. Because if you have um, one or two bad bad reviews and then you have a whole bunch of other customers that, had, that give you five or ten positive reviews, the, the negative reviews will be drowned out. So it's I also really recommend. All right, I also recommend my clients buy uh, domain names, all disparaging variations of your domain name. So, you know, xyzcompanysucks.com. Uh, a lot of times those are, you know, if it's an opinion, you can't do anything about it, whether or not, even if it wasn't defamatory. So that's another practical advice for a $50 investment, buy up some extra domain names, prevent other people from registering negative, negative disparaging domain names about your company. And also do Google Alerts for your name. That's, that's what I always advise people to do. What kind of copyright issues exist in uh, social networking sites? Are we are we seeing more copyright infringement? Dahlia, that's probably a good question for you. Yeah, we. What, what I find is really interesting is the liability you have again for uh, maintaining social networks that are where you're not the Facebook, but you have a Facebook group page, and then someone in your within your group posts uh, infringing material, for example. As administrator. Do you get any sort of protection? I mean, you don't have a DMCA notice on your Facebook group page, or a better example would be a Ning page, if you're familiar with the Ning site. Uh, I had a client who maintained an adult uh, website. So an adult, how do I say this nicely? <laughs> we have we have a mature audience for our show, right? This, this podcast. The, he maintained a Ning site for people to upload pornography, essentially. And some people in, within his Ning network uploaded gay porn belonging to a production company out of California. So he got sued as the as the owner of that Ning site. So we know Ning doesn't have liability. They have the proper DMCA notices. But what would be the liability of someone who's sub-running a group? We ultimately settled the case. We made the same argument that the, the sub-person serves the same function and role as the, the Ning company as a whole. But again, increasingly you're seeing the, these types of postings of blatantly infringing material. And, and fair use becomes harder. Uh, well, the fair use argument or defense depends on the context and how it's used, as we all know from the whole DMCA registration process, and the takedown notice, notice process. What about original work on social media? Who owns that? The, the person who uploads the material, the author retains ownership on most social media sites so long as they give up kind of a royalty-free, perpetual, non-exclusive license to the social media site to then republish and do as they want with it. People do need, if they're concerned about their material and they don't want Facebook to then repurpose or whatever their social media site may be, they need to, be, they need to read those terms and post carefully or accordingly. Is there any, uh, Brad, is there any issue about... Uh Facebook or Twitter themselves having liability, or is the uh, DMCA, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, protect uh, the the bigger social media companies? That's a big question. See, the uh, big the Viacan case that recently came down is um, is pretty clear as far as whether or not the um, uh, ISPs or OSPs have any liability. But my big contention is, um, if for example, let's say you send a, um, a DMC notice over to Facebook and they they don't act on on the notice for more than several days. Then I believe that they do have have some type of liability because under the uh, the Viacom case um, versus YouTube, what happened was after they sent, I believe it was something along the lines of a hundred thousand plus um, clips within one business day, all the clips were taken down. And um, my contention is, if you take more than a couple days, I think there might be some liability issues involved. So it's something where. 
it's going to be, I guess, flushed out more in the next several years with more litigation that comes out. But um, it, it's really going to be a big question mark as far as the time element is concerned. We need to take a quick break. And when we return, we'll talk about what companies and businesses have to do to protect themselves from the legal implications of social media. Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. Engage your brain. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and listen to all the great legal podcasts. Someone's at the door. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, I need to do that too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. Perfect. I'll do that right now. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're joined by attorney Dahlia Saper. She's the principal at Saper Law Offices out of Chicago. And attorney Brad Shear, founder and managing partner of the law office of Bradley Shear LLC out of Washington, D.C. Well, let's think about what happens in the situation where you have, um, you know, a, a person who is kind of clearly off their rocker, maybe a lunatic style stalker type. Uh, and is posting uh, false and bad information, negative information about you, and is apparently uncontrollable, just continues and continues to do it. We've seen a couple of situations like this around the country. Dahlia, Brad, what do you think we should be doing about that? That's a good question. See, the problem with the way the law currently is written, it just makes it very difficult to um, to convince um, ISPs and OSPs to take information off. And it's really a big uphill battle and in my opinion, I mean, there might there might need to be some type of change in the law, but obviously that's probably not going to happen for a long time. And the best thing that someone can do is what I said earlier was that just try to pepper as much positive things out there about yourself or about uh, or have your customers do it and try to counteract any type of negative information out there. You know, you shouldn't be afraid to use the legal system, the legal process to at least initiate discussions. Um, especially sometimes with these ISPs who will not remove anything short of a petition. You'd be surprised how many will ignore you, and then once they get the legal document, 
at least will remove the content. You may not get any damages or actually pursue the person. You, all this as a company can be done without going after the actual poster. So you can get the cooperation of the ISP merely by initiating the petition process. Because if the ISP ignores it, then then there's going to be a default you know, order granting uh, the request or the motion to remove that information, which will then be served and and whatnot. So most of the time, they don't want the legal headache. They'll remove it for you if you reach out to them in that, in that legal way. I agree with Daniel 100%. It's, when, when you do reach out, a lot of times they are willing to, to do that, but it is definitely an uphill battle in, in many cases. Let's turn to what happens when uh, companies themselves find them find difficult situations, especially trying to monitor their employees. I mean, there are smartphones everywhere. How is it that a company can oversee uh, control of posting through mobile devices? I mean, you know, Brad, you mentioned that um, in a particular situation, an employer had been following an employee, but how does an employee, or how does an employer rather, monitor their employees' use of social media? during the day when they're at work? Um, the bottom line is, as far as the way I counsel my clients, is that they really should have written policies in place. And as far as monitoring them, some I know some, uh, well, not some, but quite a few uh, companies, they block certain websites, and that's one way of doing it. But since everyone has, not everyone, but a lot of people have mobile devices, it makes it even more difficult. So I really think a, a, a very cooperative type of um, policy that you work with your employees on creating it allows the flexibility because sometimes you want to have your employees talk about your products and services, and so therefore there needs to be some type of give and take as far as allowing them to do their personal things, also their professional um, duties also. So there really needs to be some type of dialogue and engagement between employers and employees regarding creating those types of policies. And I think, you know, it's going a step further, we don't need to be so afraid of social media. While there's new ways to disseminate information, um, the consequences are the same. Whereas, you know, we, we everyone has a trade secret policy and a confidentiality policy. And, and, and employees are made to sign those documents when they start. What I think we need to do is explain that you can do whatever you want on your own time, but if you're stupid enough to you know, reveal information that's confidential or email at work, um, then, and we find out that you've done something that harms our, our company, not only will we sue you, what, what I've had my clients add in their agreements is that you will indemnify us to the extent possible. Obviously, sometimes employees don't have deep pockets, but you will indemnify us for any claims that result as, as a, you know, as a result of your, of your use of social media. So if we find out that you've posted something on Facebook, and, and you've represented yourself as this being a position of your employer, and we find out, not only will we sue you, if there's anything that comes of that, you're going to indemnify us. Um, no different, really, than when the emails were the big thing, and emails became discoverable. I think as long as you, as Brad said, train your employees to understand that social media is just another extension of an email or another way to communicate with outside the outside world, they can equally be liable for things that they do that are... Uh, are bad. I mean, in simple, in simple terms. If we're going to start, if we're going to start as employees or employers uh, requiring employees to indemnify employers, do you think we're going to start seeing like we do with vendors that uh, the employer is going to start demanding copies of insurance policies or certificates of insurance from the employees to make sure they've got some form of homeowners <laughs> coverage to protect them? I think, you know what, and you laugh, but I think that it's because we're headed that way, and especially if you're being hired for a position that, you know, 
requires you to be very vocal if you're like the press person or the PR person. Yeah, you know, I think it's not a bad idea. Um, what what I what, another really interesting issue that's come up is who owns a Twitter profile once someone's been using it actively to promote a company. Uh, we have a presentation on my site devoted to the topic of personal branding, and we, you know, with social media, the big thing is accumulating as many uh, as many people of a following you know, to create a following as you can. So, if you're a Twitter user and you've amassed twenty thousand people as followers, or you know, with Facebook, you become very attractive to a company that wants your your network to promote its products or services. So let's say they hire me and I have 20,000 followers and I start actively tweeting and posting in my social network on behalf of my employer and then I leave, what happens to those that database of contacts? Can you can you liken it to a Salesforce database where you know, clients are, are entered into the system or is it something that you get to retain since it's your network? Now, there's really no litigation about this specific issue yet though it comes up has come up in my practice does it brad do you think it depends on on who uh pays to develop the list i mean if the work is done during the day for the employee do you think that the employer has a claim to it uh, i think those issues are, are going to be exploding in the next couple of years because i've already seen seen some of those issues come up in my practice because i've seen it where someone was hired because they had um it was actually about seventy five thousand followers and they acquired more followers from working with the company. They went from like around, I think around seventy five thousand to close to one hundred thousand, and then the and they left to go to another employer. And the employer, uh, their previous employer, came back and said, "You know what? These followers should be our followers." Well, there's nothing in any type of employment contract that said that. And since it was a personal account, then it it really it goes with the employee unless unless there's something that specifically says in, in some type of employment agreement that. Your Twitter account belongs to your employer. Um, it really goes to the employee, unless there was I some other type of situation. We had. I don't think it's as, it's always as clear cut, unfortunately. Although, of course, Brad's right. The agreements are key. I have a client who you know used her own LinkedIn profile, and then her employer paid for the you know the, the upgrade, so to speak, where you can access more features. And once she was uh, fired or whatever, she resigned. They locked her LinkedIn account. So it's her account, but they paid for an upgraded feature, and now she can't access her own account. Who who's, who gets to own her LinkedIn profile? She's, their argument was, you're free to create another one if you want, but we're going to own the one you developed once we paid for the upgrade. Well, Dahlia and, and Brad, we've just about reached the end of our program, where it's time to wrap up and get your final thoughts along with your contact information for our listeners. So, Brad, we'll throw it over to you. Uh, well, to me, the bottom line is that social media is here to stay, and that social media companies really need to listen to them to their users' privacy concerns and make their default information sharing settings opt-in and not opt-out. And also, the social media ostrich syndrome will not work, so employers must embrace social media and work with their employees to create reasonable social media policies that fit their company's culture. And I'll echo what Brad says, and I think it's important to understand how social media continues to evolve, how these sites, including Facebook and Twitter, are increasing enterprise uh, their enterprise solutions, so to speak, for their for business owners and for business owners to understand how the sites work so that they can maximize their both their usage and the way that they control their image on online. And Brad, can we get our your contact information for your for our listeners? Sure. Um, the contact information is bshear at shearlaw dot com or two four zero seven four three eight 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 zero. Great. And Dahlia. 
Um, my contact info is on my website, saferlaw.com, and uh, my Twitter handle is at saferlaw. You can also find saferlaw on Facebook and LinkedIn. Facebook, of course, are the there's saferlaw group and fan pages. Great. Well, thank you both very much for being on the show with us. We had uh, Attorney Dahlia Saper, the principal of Law Offices out of Chicago, and Attorney Brad Shear, founder and managing partner of the Law Offices of Bradley S. Shear, LLC, out of D.C. And that does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. Remember, for our listeners, you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at thelegaltalknetwork.com. And our shows are available on iTunes as well. And you can also get CLE credit through West Legal Ed Center for listening to Select Legal Network Legal Talk Network podcasts, go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on West Legal Ed Center. We'll be back next week to discuss another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network. Its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.